Welcome to Intercom, a product episode 18. Today we have an interesting topic to discuss. It's all about artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm joined as ever by Intercom's Chief Product Officer, Mr. Paul Adams. Paul, how are you? I'm good, guys. Thank you. And today we have a special guest, Mr. Fergal Reed, who's our Director of Machine Learning. Fergal, how's it going? Uh, it's good, Des. I'm really delighted to be on this podcast today. Looking forward to getting into it. Excellent. You think you're like our first or second ever guest, so you should feel very, very grateful. Feel very grateful. <laughs> Especially, you should feel special. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's kind of start at the end in a sense. The AI hype machine is once again in overdrive, it would feel. This happens every few years from my vantage point. But the stuff I can see genuinely happening uh, is like people are creating a lot of art like the dolly sort of generation has kicked off well and truly and it is breathtaking some of the actual created imagery and even i saw the other day there was a, a marketplace for dolly prompts where you could literally buy prompts that create images for you which is like as meta as it gets in a more practical sense github copilot can now augment your code as you're writing which is pretty incredible i've played with gpd3 from OpenAI, and i've asked the questions and let it craft little paragraphs and stories for me and it's been pretty impressive i guess if we just zoom back up a little bit what's actually going on has something happened in the last while has this got to do with any particular chain of events that has unleashed what what's up yeah, so I mean, a, a difficult question, a complex thing to unpack. There's, there's just, there's a lot going on. You know, there's so much investment into this area of like AI and machine learning across a whole ton of companies. So it's, it's almost difficult to, to unpack exactly what's happening. If you look at like archive where people put their machine learning papers, there's like a torrent of new stuff coming up every day. So it's difficult to kind of tread a narrative through that. My own personal opinion, I would say that like for the past maybe five years, we've seen sort of sustained progress of, of something new and something exciting, which is really like neural network driven technology really starting to come into its own and starting to be useful. And so, you know, you mentioned uh, GPT-3, OpenAI, that's a couple of years ago now. That was a, what we call a large language model. So just like, you know, a big neural network that's trying to predict and the next word and a sequence of words that it's seen. And, you know, they were just scaling that up. They just added more and more compute to it, and it started to do amazing things. So maybe just, well, this is where we'll do this, but a couple of dictionary definitions. So you're adding more compute. Is that more CPU power, like more? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so people are using GPUs. So probably yeah. for the last, like, 10 years. I remember when I was in college. GPU being the graphics version of CPU. Exactly. Okay, okay. Bring, bring, it, bring it down a bit. <laughs> I'm, tr I'm trying to include everything here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah, cast yeah. a wide net. <laughs> okay, all right. That's fair. So, yeah. So, you know, I guess to, to go back a long way, you know, we had these CPUs in our computers, the brain of our computer, really, really fast at doing like general purpose things. And um, maybe in the like mid to late 90s, primarily driven by like video games and stuff. Yeah. We had like this like mass market of adoption of these like GPUs or yeah. graphics processing units. Yeah. Like NVIDIA cards and shit like that. And, like NVIDIA cards and your 3DFX card and everything. And they were really good at like making graphics for computer games. And then like in sort of the early 2000s, um, people were kind of like, oh, you know, the sort of operations we do for video games, they're really good for like matrix multiplication. And okay. it turns out that that sort of stuff is really useful also for sort of operations you need to do when you're training like a neural network. Cool. And so like a long time later, NVIDIA's stock value goes like through the yeah. roof because there's an AI revolution and, and a crypto mining revolution yeah. as well. You know, for some period of time, you use the same currency to do both. You reference like a new uptick, I guess, in work on neural networks. Like is I feel like, you know, I heard about them when I was in college back in the day. Like, has there just been more work put into them? Uh, has they, have they emerged as a primary way to do machine learning? Is there an alternative that we've moved away from? What's going on there? Yeah, I, I would say that there is an alternative we've moved away from. Now, 
I don't want to like oversell neural networks. Neural networks are like the new hotness and like all the breakthroughs you've seen in the last five years or almost all the breakthroughs are sort of like neural networks and like, you know, GPT-3 is like a huge big neural network. Yeah. Everything you've referenced earlier. However, you know, that's just, that is a subsection of machine learning. The, the work the machine learning team here does at Intercom, neural networks is maybe like 30% of what we do. We're using okay. like the same logistic regression stuff for like predicting what someone's going to do next. And okay. So like, so like there's still a mix out there in production, but the new stuff, the stuff where like, particularly where there's unstructured data, stuff like, you know, text, masses of text or like images or sound and neural networks of like, you know, they're definitely now the, the best way to deal with data like that. And so the breakthroughs and the stuff you're seeing, the visual stuff, the sound stuff, the, yeah. the text synthesis, you know, you, you need like a massive model that can really capture a whole lot of dependencies in that data. And neural networks are the, kind of the main way to do that. People have invested a lot in making them scale and yeah. you can run them much bigger. And like some of these models that you're, you're reading about or you're seeing about, like might cost like $10 million worth of compute to just like yeah. train that model. And so like there's a number of things going on. We're getting better at training them. We're getting better at like expressing the problem in a way that we can make progress on and make sense of it. And then also like training them at scale and then also like NVIDIA and so on are like continuing to improve performance. So like a lot of technological revolutions, it's like it's a confluence of a whole lot of different trends. To transition into the sort of the product aspects, is there, what's possible now that wasn't before? Like in the sense of like, say Dolly can like take a prompt and produce an image. GPT-3 can produce pretty realistic looking generated text. Yeah. You're saying that like, um, if you wanted to analyze a load of text and work out, what it's saying, you know, reduce it down or simplify it or like check for sentiment or whatever. Is there like some sort of like list of like, here's the capabilities we now have in the world? And, and the reason I'm asking is because I'm trying to tie this closer to like, how should PMs think about this? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few different ways to think about this. Like, like any sort of unstructured text data, unstructured image data, like in the past, we kind of look at that from a machine learning perspective and we'd be like, don't know what to do here, right? Like I have you know, the, the size of this, the number of possible paragraphs of text that could be in my document is, is crazy high. It is, I don't know how to deal with that with traditional machine learning. You can do stuff like, you know, extract features, like say, I'm going to break this into a bag of words and extract stuff. But what's, what's sort of like, what's different now is your methods to work with that data is just going to work much better than it would have in the past. And you don't need as much like hand engineering of features. You can use a neural network. And I also think that like we're starting to see sort of like middle steps emerging, like kind of middle layers. Like, so, you know, there's this thing we would call embeddings, right? Where you can take like one of these big neural networks that's been trained on a ton of text data and then maybe released by, you know, Google or one of the big players and, you know, who spend that $10 million on training. And then you can go and you can use that to take any text you give it to convert it into like a vector of numbers and then you can do stuff with that vector of numbers. And so, you know, there's been breakthrough technology, but it has sort of given building blocks that startups can actually work with right. and start making products with. So like, the, you know, the first X percent is done for you by effectively, you know, the, the bigger companies. Exactly. Or, or, or like open consortia as well. Like we're starting to see stuff as well, where there's like people forming a consortium that like put together a whole lot of money to like train something big that then is released. So is there some sentence like if your product involves lots of human written text, either creating replies or like either writing it or parsing it or understanding it, 
you should assume the kind of the ground has shifted under your feet over the last couple of years. Is that like is that one base assumption? Yeah, I, I think that that's a fair assumption. I think if you're if you're in any sort of a startup ecosystem where you know you, you're dealing with a lot of like unstructured data, particularly like large volumes of unstructured data, maybe you're trying to make decisions with it or do something with that. You should definitely be paying attention. The capability landscape here has changed, and it might be the case that like ten years ago. You know, you didn't, you know, nothing you had to worry about here. Now maybe there's something cool you can build that you couldn't build before. And like even stuff as simple as like search, like we're starting to see like a change in search, like yeah. search, you know, six, seven years ago, like get Elasticsearch, get something like that and use these like kind of tried and true algorithms to like handle your search thing. Now you can use like neural search, right? Just like search using these neural networks and using embeddings. And you, we're starting to see like emerging technology, emerging products in that space. Yeah. So, yeah. One thing for I'd love to ask you about is the products that promise next specs action. Mm-hmm. So like, I think this is important for product teams for two reasons. One is just products in that space. Like if you have a customer communication product or like you have a product for sales teams, there's a lot of promise around telling the salesperson what the next best action is. And equally for product teams themselves, you know, they're often trying to get their customers and users to do more, engage more. So it's a tool for them themselves to drive growth. How much of that is hype? How much is real? You know, I, I read about it everywhere from Gartner and Forrester down to like startup blog posts. So, so, I mean, you know, there's always a problem with these machine learning products. And I say this as someone who builds machine learning products for a living, which is it's very difficult from the outside to tell exactly how much is hype and how much is real of like anyone's offering. So, you know, I, I, I can't speak about specific products unless I've gone and like analyzed them and benchmarked them. I would say that the, the next best action stuff you know, like that's actually less likely to be neural networks. It's less likely to be this sort of thing we're talking about. Or if they're there, they'll be there as like a component of it. So I'll take like, you know, maybe in an intercom context, I'll, I'll take the text of the conversation that's been happening between the, the support rep and the end user. And I'll use embeddings to like try and make sense of that. But then I'll probably put that together with a bunch of other signals I have about like what's going on, maybe the, the value of the account, where the customer is at in their customer journey. And I'll use maybe a more traditional machine learning classifier or regressor to try and like predict, okay, what's the next best thing I could do? And like this, this stuff works pretty well. Like, you no, know, we have features in our products that kind of like use uh, more traditional machine learning methods that attempt to predict, say, you know, when someone comes to a website and they, they open up the messenger, what they're about to ask about. And like we do that based on like all the data and all the signals we have about that user. And that works pretty well. And so, you know, if you can make good predictions with that, this is a short step from there to like something more general. That's like a next best action. So yeah, I, I bet that stuff works, works pretty well. I would have reasonable expectations of accuracy. All these things kind of like work well when they're sort of like augmenting and helping somebody. And, you know, there's a very fine regime there where if the accuracy is like too low, it's like, oh, this is annoying, it's crappy, it's not worth paying attention to. Users get blind. But then, like, you know, as the accuracy increases, 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 it crosses some critical thresholds where it's like, yeah, it's not always right, but it's useful and I don't have to think, I can just look at it and like, yeah, recognize that helps. And that's what we're looking for with these products. And I'm sure we have, I'm sure there's people in the industry that have. I feel like that. Gmail's autocomplete is kind of, they've crossed that like perceptual cliff or whatever where like, I wouldn't turn that feature off. Right, like the idea, you know, it's like you're you're typing a reply and it, it guesses the next two things you're going to say, and you can hit tab and maybe you change a sentence or a word or something like that. But like it's it's directionally more valuable than not. It's funny. Yeah. Though, I think it changes behavior. It's only my own personal yeah, yeah, experience yeah. of it. Changes behavior too. Like totally. I, I look at the suggestion and go, 
I wouldn't quite say that, but it's close, but it's close enough. enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tap, tap, tap. Yeah, yeah. Enter, send. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have a thing about this. I wonder, like, if they ever do experiments where they, like, measure the suggestions they produce, measure the scent and the suggestions they produce, and, like, how they change the real world. Uh, Facebook infamously did some experiments like this back in the day. And, you know, less socially uncomfortably. And um, if you look at, like, something like Intercom, I mean, I, I, I see a future where... You know, we're starting to, to make like smart reply recommendations within the inbox. Yeah. And like I see a future where we can help learn, okay, what suggestions prompt teammate behavior that like gives better CSAT in the end of the day or like, you know, yeah. better lifetime value of the customer at the end of the day in a win-win way. And yeah, and it's, it's like those sort of like low friction prompts. I, I think about that whenever I like write, I love you to my wife. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> sometimes I get the suggestion for I love you and I'm like, I, I'm, I'm typing that myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is something Marshall McCluney about it that like we shape our tools and our tools shape us, right? Like yeah. in that uh, you could imagine a CS rep newly onboarded to a team that uses Intercom will actually end up talking and typing a, a lot like their colleagues based on the fact that Intercom is telling them like that this is the behavior that seems to perform best, which is kind of like it's almost like a finishing skill for like customer support or something, right? Like, and I mean, we, we talked to some customers who love that idea, who love the idea of like kind of a low friction, like training ramp yeah. for new reps, which yeah. is like, you know, that, see, see like the best practice, the thing yeah. that like leads to resolutions from like in aggregate from all your other like coworkers yeah. in the future. Yeah. That's what like, that's what the system nudges you to do in a yeah. good way, in a way that's beneficial. Okay, if we go back up a level, I feel that a lot of the narrative, even when, say, Dolly came out, the most popular threads on it were things like, can anyone name a good use case for this? Or here's my best idea. And like it always, you know, so Dolly being take a text prompt, produce a cool image. Like obviously everyone's minds goes, oh, you could build a t-shirt company or whatever. My best stab at what would be useful was, I think it was the ability to annotate a children's storybook. So like you imagine a tool where I agree that like a child type of story and then Im- images or pictures would appear to augment it or whatever. But you could also see how it could be a plug-in for like a Squarespace or a MailChimp or whatever to replace the stock photography keynote or like Google Slides would be similar. I do feel like we're approaching this backwards though. We're saying given that we can now take text and produce images, let's build a company out of it, right? Which is kind of like not like where you can imagine the best companies come from. Usually they tend to want to solve a problem in the world. What's the best way for like a founder or a PM to sort of think about this space? Like generally speaking, they probably obsess about a problem, not about a particular piece of new neural tech or whatever. So, so, I mean, th- this is a very complex question. You know, a lot of the time, like standard advice is if, if you're building some new technology startup, it's really disheartening. You get told like, oh, it feels like you're a solution looking for a problem. Mm-hmm. And like, so, you know, you never want to be a solution looking for a problem. You want to find like a real concrete problem and then approach the solution. And I, I think that's that's generally good advice. Intercom, we've got a principle around like starting with the problem and mm-hmm. we really sweat that. But I think there are exceptions to that. And I think like genuinely disruptive technology where like, you're like, okay, something's changed in the world, it's changed in the landscape. There's a new capability here. And like, I don't know what it's good for yet, but I know it's going to be revolutionarily good for something. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more okay to start with the solution and then start going to look for problems. And so it feels to me subjectively, like, I guess I believe the hype about ML and AI at the moment. I think this time, and you know, and I, I would try to say the last five years we're on a journey here, but I said the last five years, like, this time it's real. And so I, I think it is It is more fair game here to kind of like say, look, we've got like a revolutionary new capability here. Where are all the great opportunities that this, that this can be applied? And then obviously there's an interplay. Like when you actually like think you found an opportunity, mm-hmm. then you probably do want to go and start with the problem. Look, you know, the machine learning team here in Intercom is a little unusual compared to a lot of the other teams. 
we adapt to sort of the like product principles a little bit more than some other teams do because we have to be in this sort of like gray space between like, you know, start with the problem and like, but like there's no point starting with the problem, trying to build a technology solution to it that just isn't anywhere capable yet. So we've got to start with the technology a little bit, do some prototyping, get some idea of what's possible here. And then go and like really sweat the problem and sweat is it useful or not? You know? It's almost like you have to like do both demand side and supply side innovation in a sense. You need to like look at all the problems we can solve, which I'm pointlessly gesturing on a podcast I'm with my left hand, and then all the capabilities we have, which is the right hand. Where is a good firm sort of interconnection? So like if we take say our product resolution bot, how would you articulate that as a problem solution pairing? So I mean, when we started out, we started we were aware that there was like a move in the technology and a move in the product landscape where like, you know, bots had been like really poor and like now they were starting to get like not so poor. They were starting to like, you know, actually give compelling experiences in very limited circumstances. We were like, okay, there's something here. And then it was like, okay, you know, can we take like our particular domain? Can we take like chat and conversations? And can we see if there's, there's, there's that marriage, there's that like, match between the, the problem and the technology that's actually going to, to give like great customer experiences there. And so like I'd say Resolution Bot, we we started out, we didn't use neural networks or anything for our version one, but we had conviction that it was possible to build something good here. And then we like we went and we iterated on that as we went. We went and built like minimal technology investment actually validate that like a kind of a crappy knocked together prototype would actually help customers people would actually want it and then like yeah de-risk that and then like iterated 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 now we're on like version three or version four of our technology it uses like very modern fancy neural networks it gets like best in class performance and accuracy but you know the first version was 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 like elastic search sort of like off the shelf and like just validate that this will actually help people and so yeah, so you're searching like breadth first through product space, but you want to like guide that search. You want to be like, yeah, I, I know that there's there's something good in this general direction of the product space. I'm not going to end up with like, I have validated amazing demand for a product that is impossible to deliver. You, yeah, know? Yeah. you don't want to be there. You also don't want to be like, I have an amazing algorithm that will definitely move the needle for something nobody cares about. Yeah, yeah. So like you, you got to like iterate on like on both sides of that equation and then find some kind of like landing zone in the middle. You know? It sounds to me there, Fergal, there's actually a third leg of the stool. There's the problem. I'm gesturing with my hands too. Yeah. I don't have three hands, so this is, uh, <laughs> there's a problem, uh, there's a solution, and then there's the story. There's like what you can say about it. And one of the things that I've struggled with with AI and machine learning here, we've struggled with it too, is what you feel good about saying externally and what other people are saying externally. And so I think at the worst of this is a tragedy of commons where like all companies come out and say, you know, they make huge claims. And then the people who actually know what they're talking about say like they're ludicrous claims, they're not real. But there is this competitive dilemma where you're like, well, if our competitor says 80%, and the and there's no way we think they can get that they're making some like, you know, this there's, there's some sub claim or you know some asterisks there, but ours is like fifty, and so how do you think about that? How do you think about the claims you can make and the balance between the problem solution and story? I mean, it, so it, it's very difficult. I, I would separate out the internal product development from the like success in the market, like internal product development. You know, I guess this is true in Intercom, maybe it's not true everywhere, but like, 
you know, if, if I come and I say, hey, guys, I, I'm pretty sure we can like give a good enough product experience. And um, I'm at least like accountable if it turns out that's not the case at all. And so like internally, you know, I, I think you got to like work with people and explain things well, but at least the incentives are aligned. Externally, when people are like competing in the market with like ML products, like it's really hard. Like, you know, you can totally come across, like we mentioned this earlier, I come across like products in the market and like I assess their claims and I'm like, this is claiming to do something amazing. And like, does it actually, like, how do you evaluate that? And it's very difficult to do so without putting them together in a head to head. And I think, you know, this is just a hard problem of sort of machine learning products or AI products where people are trying to like make claims based on numbers and, and it cuts through the entire industry. Like even if I see a new research paper promising something amazing and it's, it's got like examples of, you know, this is what the ML, we, we said this to the AI and this is what it said back. My first question is always like, well, was that a cherry picked example? Does it do that like nine times out of 10 or like one time out of 10? Because it's very different depending on each. And so like there's always this implicit like, well, what's the performance actually? And you can't really tell unless you do some sort of head head or you sit down and play with it. And I think, you know, this is just, this is something that's that's hard about this space in terms of like intercom. Our, our customers are, are doing more like head-to-heads and like proof of concepts, evaluations. I love that. Like, I, I, yeah. that's wonderful. That's what we want to see. And um, in terms of the space in general, you know, I, I think you've seen people make demos publicly available more and more. Like you're seeing things like, People go like Dali two or whatever, like they get they get access to like independent researchers earlier and like or they do stuff like in the papers are saying this is what it produces in one run on a standard prompt and you know that helps people uh, get their head around it and things like Dali two are like extremely visual like you can look at that yeah. and like hey this is like an image wow I I, I can at a glance with my cognitive visual hardware yeah. that I've evolved through millions of years as a human, I, I can like process a lot of information visually here and be like, yeah, this, 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 this thing's doing something cool. And so there is a kind of question of what sort of revenue do you want? Because I, I think you can definitely overpromise, under deliver and then watch the account churn. I think loads of companies have done that over the years and we know how that kind of plays out. Or you can say factually, here's what we think we can do for you risk losing the deal but know that if they if they actually do convert they will get what they kind of converted for and i think like it's, it's just it's a dangerous world to be in like taking the high road versus the low road and like taking the like customers who are going to get exactly what they thought they were going to get versus getting a load of angry customers in month 11 or whatever because you know they didn't get anywhere near what they hoped for is just a, a challenge of a lot of that it, it is a challenge and there's so many facets to that challenge like another one is you know we have to manage expectations too, which is like machine learning is, is getting way better. It's still not perfect. And like, you know, we sometimes have customers who buy a resolution bot and, you know, it, it, it's good. It's, it's industry best in class, but it, it, it still makes mistakes. Every software product still makes mistakes. And so, you know, you, you've got to manage expectations on all sides there to, to kind of have that positive relationship. How do you think about resourcing machine learning? So Intercom, the way we have it is we have a team led by yourself who are like separate to all the other teams and then partner to deliver ML functionality. Do you think it'll stay that way? Do you think teams should have embedded ML engineers? Like the way we have like every team in Intercom has its own designer. We don't have like a design team floating around looking for bits of design to add. Does it make sense the way it is? Is this a temporal thing? If like, for our listeners out there, like sh- how, how would they dip their toe and would they start off with a dedicated ML sort of pod or would they, you know, have a person or how, how do you think about just in general, how should startups start to like bring ML in? I have a strong opinion that a centralized ML team 
is better for certainly for organizations of our size or smaller at this point in the technology development. So we're dealing with immature technology here. Like the technology is hard to use. It's easy to go wrong. And so there's a set of skills that overlap with the skills of software engineering or of data science or analytics, but they're not the same as it. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to have a centralized team who can kind of like work and hone that like that set of skills as a group who can learn the pitfalls because ML products have unique pitfalls. They're they're probabilistic. Like we mentioned, they sometimes get it wrong. So like when you're designing or building an ML product, you've got to like really sweat, you know, is the accuracy rate that I get good enough to like provide a good customer experience? And like, that's hard. And, you know, when you, when you, when you go talk to like a designer, you know, one thing we often see is it's difficult for a designer at the start to like get their head around that you, you can't just think of like the golden path here where everything goes right. You have to consider like all the paths where things go wrong and where error can accumulate. So that's difficult. That's just one product example. And we're also like, we're at this weird intersection of like software engineering. We have to be able to deploy these products with sort of like, you know, data science or research. And, you know, we got to run like a product team. We got to be like lean and efficient. But like, we also have to run a bit like a research team where we have to like create space for innovation and for, you know, you, you just spent two weeks working on something and it, it went nowhere. And like, that's fine. You know, don't learn any lesson there. Like, you know, we've got to be willing to invest that. And so I, I think that like a centralized model of having like a central machine learning team that then goes and embeds and does help on a project by project basis. I think that's the right model at the moment for this level of technology. And um, what you, you touched on it there as well, like, and maybe one for Paul, because like, it's more in your area, but like, how do you deal with the fact that like, Somebody like Fergal says, hey, Paul, we're going to have a go at insert intercom private secret projects. <laughs> let's say uh, let's say resolution bots, uh, just because it's public. Part of that pitch always comes if it's from Fergal or one of his team with about 11 asterisks, <laughs> which, which, which kind of, it nets out to like, I think of a product that could transform the nature of our customer support product, but it might not work and you might not see anything on the far side of all this. And at the same time, like someone like me is saying, hey, we need to ship the roadmaps and we need to tell the company what we're building and tell the sales team what to be selling. How do you resolve that complexity? And I guess the question for both of you, but we'll start with Paul. Yeah, I'll give an on answer and ask for like what I was going to do. <laughs> uh, so as someone who worked at times for years on products that never shipped, I have deep, deep scar tissue about any sniff of a thing that isn't going to ship something as soon as possible, as small as possible. And they forgot to mention our This would be your earlier. former employer, to be clear, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yes, yes, to be very clear. <laughs> in my former employment, uh, yes, yes, very clear. Uh, but that's it. Like from day one at Intercom, you know, like Des, you and I have always been obsessed yeah, yeah. about shipping and starting small. Like Fergal mentioned our principles earlier. We have a principle around thinking big, starting small. And so we obsess about scoping, getting something out as fast as possible, the smallest, quickest solution to the problem we've identified. And so I, I have a desire that that's always the case. Now, obviously, this is different. And so I, I can give you a better answer in a second. One question I, I'd, I'd love for Fergal to answer first, though, it's a bit of a, a side note, but I think it's important for us and our listeners is, Fergal, when you were answering Des's question earlier about how you resource an ML team, you're talking about the ML engineers. And for almost all of our ML team history here, it's been ML engineers. We recently hired an ML designer. So can you just tell us briefly about that too? Because that's, I think, an important part of the answer here. Like, what does the ML designer do and what's the difference? 
So, I mean, that's a hard question. Our ML designer, this is the start of her week three. And so I don't want to be talking on the podcast about what she's going to do before talking to her in a bit more detail. <laughs> at, a higher, so, at a higher level, yeah. how do you think of ML design versus regular design? So, 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 uh, so let, let, me, let me invert the order here back again, and I'll come back to this, right? So, you know, I hate working on things that don't ship. And, you know, I, I, I PhD, came from academia. Anyone who's had time in academia probably has seen so many projects that like promised the moon on a stick and then like never do anything. And, you know, part of it is like necessary waste, right? It's like it's it's creative destruction or whatever. It's like you, you've got to try in a lot of things because it's so risky. And then part of it was like always never going to work. And so teasing those two things apart is like is absolutely key here. And so like I want the machine learning team to be as exploratory and risky as possible and like no more exploratory, no more riskier. So I, I think we, we, we try and like tread two worlds here. We try and like keep this extremely firm intercom principles. Like, you know, if you're going to fail, like fail fast, like start with the problem, like start small, like move, move in small steps. We try like extremely hard to kind of like follow those principles, but then, you know, do the research when we need to do the like the, the the risky stuff like when we need to when we're like you know pretty convinced yeah someone would want this if it actually delivered the goods and like you know we want to be very very clear about like the risk that we're trying to eliminate at every phase in the development and so that's kind of like how we operate i, I would say like we we are more researchy than the average intercom team but probably more thoughtful about like moving in small steps and about exactly the risk we're trying to reduce than the vast majority of of, of ML teams out there in the world and um, certainly much more so than a, a research lab team would tend to be. So, you know, with that in mind, we recently like hired a designer for the first time in, I guess, the, the five years or so that we've had an ML team. And that's partly because the team is getting a bit bigger and can really kind of support that. And also, as our team has grown, our work is like touching more and more parts of the intercom product. And, you know, we can just do better than sort of like handling that product design ourselves and having like an ML engineer sort of like figure out the product design envelope. And we'll be able to like increase the, the, the scope of things that we can interact with, with, with less disruption to the teams that we're in whose area we're operating. So is it a different type of design? There is definitely a certain type of design that is specific to ML and to ML products. And, you know, we can see this when we're interviewing or when we're like interacting with designers in this space. There's sort of a product design or a systems design. It's, it's a lot of the time it's, you know, aspects of it are closer to API design right. than they are to like UI design. And, you know, obviously there's a big spectrum here. We have a great design team at Intercom. We have like people used to working in all different parts of that spectrum. But yeah, there's definitely a difference. And then also you're looking for like quantitative skills to like make progress in this space. Like, you you, you know, it's very immature technology. There will come a time, I'm sure, in like five years, 10 years, I don't know, when like, you know, Amazon and Google and everyone have like figured out like the best API. If you're building anything in recommendation systems, here's this API you probably want. And it's going to have really nice docs and explain to you all the primitives of that space. But like, we're not there yet. We're a very, very long way away from there. And so there's just, there's so many trade-offs. Even when you're doing something as simple as like maybe testing an ML system and it's not working the way you expected. Like, why was that? Like actually unpacking and unpicking that requires a lot of like, you've got to be willing to engage with a lot of complexity. 
And some designers are great at that. And then other designers that wouldn't be ideally yeah. how they'd like to work. And so, yeah, you're looking for, for something that kind of treads all those needles at once. Yeah, We're coming towards the end here. I would like to try a little quick fire round that I haven't prepared you for at all. Okay, sounds good. Here's my proposal. I name a product or a product space, and you tell me something that you think is possible that people don't think about. Oh my God, okay. This is going to be necessarily futuristic and speculative and wrong, but let's, let's do it. Uh, well, <laughs> we start out, uh, so issue tracking. Um, a lot like customer support, you know, probably like you can do a lot more with like clustering issues, with detecting when like a whole bunch of issues are actually like, you know, have one root cause probably doing much better in terms of like next best action about like suggesting resolutions for common issues you've seen before. Cool. This is going well. Project management apps, say Basecamp or Asana or something like that. Project management apps. It's probably like an insights layer you can build on top of that stuff. People always say that. It's always easy to say and extremely difficult to make an insights product work. There's probably an insights layer you can build on that stuff that it wouldn't work. There's probably a lot you can do with like unstructured assets that are part of the project you're tracking that you can start to make sense of those you couldn't in the past. Definitely feels researchy, but it's probably something there. Paul, do you have any? Well, one hot space we mentioned earlier is communication products. I think more broadly than I say intercom or, you know, like Gmail, for example, like, you know, Gmail as a product was the same for, I don't know, the best part of a decade. And suddenly it feels like there's an, an explosion in all sorts of cool things happening in Gmail. Yeah. I, I buy that. I mean, this is going to sound extremely self-serving, but I, I personally think that like the sort of domain we're in, in intercom here is going to like drive a lot of extremely exciting innovation that I think is then going to like percolate out to like broader, more horizontal products like Gmail. And like to give an example of like, why do I think this? There's just, if you know, you look at like our customers as they use intercom, they're just I mean, they're, they're doing so much of the same conversations again and again and again. There's so much structure in that domain. And it's, it's this mix of like unstructured like texts that they're writing. But then there's so much structure to the conversation. Whereas like Gmail is like broad and horizontal. And like, you know, if you look at my inbox, I'm, you know, any email could be completely different than the last. So I, I kind of feel that like companies like us working in areas like customer support and areas like that are going to be in a great position to like, really innovate like because there's just there's so much structure to take advantage of there so you're going to have like suggestions recommendations automation and i i think that will percolate out that will like go out to these broader more horizontal products after it's like proved business value and i, I think you know we're going to head for a, a future where you're going to have like very speculatively you know in agents you'll have like an agent who like when you like answer your email or you communicate you're sort of like negotiating with an agent who's like negotiating with the other end of the communication like we're kind of getting there already. Like, you know, any sort of like suggestions or smart replies in our inbox or like the Gmail style type ahead suggestions. Like it's it's starting to become an agent, starting to like kind of scratch that direction. And we're going to see more and more. It's very easy to answer your question. It's very easy for me to imagine a world where a WhatsApp exchange, let's say between any one of us, is literally just like t- tap, reply, tap, reply, tap, reply. Yeah, like, yeah. We're going to go for dinner. Here's four places, buying, what time, buying. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're literally like it's, yeah. It, you're just inserting the recommended content. You know, on ML, we've been talking about stuff like, you know, is the future of like the inbox something like where you're sitting almost looking at like this dashboard of like a conversational tree that's like unfolding in front of you. And like your job is to like guide the AI Mm -hmm. to answers questions for you through branches of that tree whenever it gets stuck. So like maybe the future of a comms and conversations looks a lot less like keyboard and typing. You're still going to do that sometimes, but maybe like 80% of what you do is like, 
much more structured. It's yeah. like guide through this tree, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's like the augmentation changes. Uh, like the AI stops augmenting you and you start augmenting it. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, you know, which, it's, it, which, which is good. Like, it's like you are now just doing, it's like almost like you're managing somebody who's answering your conversation. That, yeah. that, that's always my number one thinking tool for like AI disruption is like, imagine you had a very well-paid, like smart human that was like doing the task and you told them what to do. What would that look like? You know, yeah. pair programming, right? Like in, in programming, you know, people were always like, oh, it's, it's, there'll never be software that like automatically programs. We, or we'll never have visual programming. We've tried yeah. it a whole bunch of times. I was always like, well, I used to do programming competitions. And if you have a highly skilled developer, you don't say like the exact keystrokes. You say like, yeah. oh, now flip the list around. Okay. And then like filter out those two things. If you're ever wondering what the future looks like, Put the two humans doing the task where like one person's allowed to touch the computer and the other isn't and see how those two humans interface and imagine like that's a great starting point yeah. for where AI could take us. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, last question. You mentioned before AI is like a disruptive force. It's not the case that if you're running like a project management app or whatever, you just need to add a little drip of AI here and there in your home. How would our listeners, if they haven't already embarked upon an AI ML journey, and let's say they have budget for like a couple of heads or whatever, what's the best thing to do? So, I mean, like any sort of disruptive tech change, the first question is always like, is it still worth ignoring? And like, how long can you ignore it for? And I'm not saying that like, hey, everybody race to do something now. Maybe you're in a space where you should continue to ignore this as it matures for another few years. If you can't ignore it, or if you're like, yeah, I want to do something in this space, you know, I would say like concentrate your resource, concentrate your budget, try and get someone who's like, you know, got some experience, at, you know, deep experience at the tech end and then enough of a product head on their shoulders that they can go and like work with your product team productively and start exploring opportunities from there. Start building relationships with the designers in the company, start like sketching out and figuring out, okay, what would be possible to design here? And I start mocking up some designs. Do they look exciting? Do they look good? Show them to your customers, get customer feedback and like take it from there. After that, you're sort of, you're into the standard like product development. Like how do we know whether to resource something or not? But I would say like concentrate your budget and your resources and get someone who like knows what you're doing as much as possible. And then like have them pair with like your existing organizational assets. Don't go and say like, we're going to do some like blue sky thinking. We're going to like start a new lab and put it off site and they're going to go and they're going to like build nothing for like yeah. two years and it'll be a very impressive nothing. No, like, you know, definitely tread that balance, you know, and that, that's what it's all about. It's about like marrying and balancing the technology and the design. For everybody, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. And we'll see you again all again for Intercom on Product. Take care, everyone. This is Intercom on Product.